Let me take this opportunity to wish all of you a happy new year. Hope the last two weeks have been very festive and celebratory. You've got lots of great time with your family. Uh, the thing about, you know, the climax of the year when it's really great, like inevitably the first week of the new year is kind of an emotional dip. I don't know if you're that way. Uh, but if that's you, I've got good news this morning. We've got a great shepherd in Jesus Christ. That's the message of John to us in John chapter 10. I invite you to turn in the Gospel of John uh, to, the cha- to chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Verses 1 through 21. It's not clear what part of the sanctuary that uh, noise is coming from. No need to apologize. Uh, John 10, 1 through uh, 21. Let's hear God's word together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have, sh- I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, as we look back on the previous year, we confess that you have been indeed a good shepherd to us. You've provided for us in every way. You've preserved us in the faith. You've taken care of us and met every need. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your past faithfulness, and we are confident that even in this new year, you will continue to watch over us, continue to be with us, and finish the good work that you've begun in us. Lord Jesus, we pray for a greater faith and confidence in you. Help us, Lord, to trust that you are good and that you lead us where we need to go. Uh, Help us to rest in your direction and follow you wherever you want to take us this coming year. Uh, Help us to walk with a robust confidence in you, our shepherd, we ask. Amen. Um, In Scripture, one of the signs that God is blessing his people is that he gives them good leaders 
or a common biblical metaphor for leadership in the Bible, he gives them good shepherds, shepherds after his own heart. Uh, when God wants to bless his people, he raises up wise, uh, sacrificial, capable, God-fearing leaders, and they lead the people of God into blessing. And a sign of God's displeasure, on the other hand, uh, displeasure with his people is that he gives them incompetent, foolish, selfish, and inadequate leaders that lead them not to spiritual prosperity, but to ruin. Uh, one of the famous Old Testament passages that highlights God's concern for the leadership of his people, very famous passage, is Ezekiel 34, verses 2 through 4. In this passage, uh, God gives his, pro his prophet Ezekiel uh, a word of condemnation for the shepherds or leaders of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel castigates the selfish leaders of Israel uh, in, in this way. God tells Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. This is a word of condemnation for Israel's spiritual and political leadership. You have not sought uh, the sheep. You have not uh, served them the way I've called you to. You've put yourself first, and you've destroyed the flock. But then in that same chapter, God promises that he's going to provide the ultimate shepherd for his people, a shepherd who will lead his people into green pastures of divine blessing. Ezekiel 34, 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. God looks at the situation in Israel, sees the selfish, destructive leaders, and says, I'm going to remedy the situation. I'm going to remedy it by providing the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate king, who is going to lead God's people into blessing. And it is within that frame of reference that we need to understand Jesus' discourse, the good shepherd discourse, his teaching here. He is that ultimate shepherd whom God provides, not simply for Israel, but for the whole world. Those who follow him will experience the blessings of God. He's the leader that we've all been looking for. But we also need to understand his words in the immediate context. Uh, you may recall last week, we looked at chapter 9, and Jesus he, uh, healed a man who had been born blind. And blind all of his life, Jesus heals him. And ironically, uh, we won't go into all of the details, but ironically, that healing results in his getting expelled from the synagogue. Uh, the spiritual leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, uh, don't like what he's saying about Jesus, and so they expel him from his religious community. Uh, his leaders are spiritually blind. And so Jesus is saying to this man, and he's saying to us, uh, if you want a leader who will lead you to blessing and guide you toward lush pastures and a uh, place of God's blessing, then look to me. Uh, don't look to those uh, spiritual leaderships who are actually spiritually bankrupt. Look to me, and I will guide you where you need to go. We see three things about Jesus in this passage. One, Jesus knows his sheep. Two, Jesus gives abundant life to his sheep. Three, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Knows his sheep, gives them abundant life, lays down his life for them. So the first emphasis in this passage, in the first five verses, 
is the intimacy and closeness that exists between Christ and his sheep. In the, in the first two verses, Jesus distinguishes between himself, the true, the legitimate shepherd, and all kinds of illegitimate leaders who try to break into the sheepfold and lead sheep astray. He says that uh, when, when a man climbs in, uh, doesn't go through the gate, but climbs in over the wall to get to the sheep, that's a sign that he is an imposter, that he's illegitimate. Uh, he speaks here of thieves and robbers who illegitimately try to get access to the flock. And the reference in the immediate context is uh, to people like the Pharisees in chapter 9. Spiritual leaders who instead of bringing blessing and insight to God's people, lead them astray. These are the thieves and robbers Jesus is talking about. These are the illegitimate shepherds. And in contrast to them, he is the legitimate and true shepherd who enters by the gate. And when the sheep hear his voice, they follow. But right off the bat, we see an important implication of of the distinction Jesus makes here between legitimate and illegitimate shepherds. Uh, We need to understand that one perennial spiritual danger to us is false teachers. Those who claim to be speaking on behalf of God, who know their Bibles well, who exhibit a sort of superficial commitment to God, but who are actually far from God. Uh, We need to be very wary of those who claim to be speaking for God, but are actually uh, leading people astray. Here's how one author uh, articulates this danger. Matt Carter writes, The greatest danger to your spiritual health will most likely come from someone claiming to be a Christian, someone who quotes a lot of verses and distracts you from the gospel of Jesus. We need to especially pay attention to that warning because we live in an age of like limitless digital content. You can go on YouTube and listen to professors from this and that university or seminary or just uh, self-appointed experts sometimes who have the Bible up in front of them and you know, they make their declarations to the world. Uh, there are all kinds of books that are coming off of all kinds of presses and uh, some of them good and some of them terrible. Uh, we need arguably an even higher level of discernment than past generations of believers. Uh, we need to be very careful about who we listen to and the direction that we are being led. Is our commitment to Jesus growing as a result of being exposed to the the material we're listening to? Uh, Do we love him more? Are we more eager to obey his commands? Or are we being led astray? And often the way it happens, I mean, obviously, if there's a clear denial of the teaching of Scripture, don't listen to that person. But it's often more subtle. And often the way it works is someone will begin to major on minors. We'll start drawing your attention to peripheral, esoteric matters in Scripture. And more and more, you, you forget about Christ and the great central truths of Scripture, and you become increasingly preoccupied with the seven-headed beast of Revelation. I don't know. I'm just using that as an example. Uh, I don't mean to imply anything, right? The point is simply uh, an interest in the esoteric at the expense of, of being interested in what is central to Scripture, being interested in Christ. So be wary of the things that you are listening to, the people who are influencing you. Ask questions about, you know, is this person connected to a church or denomination, a seminary? What's their reputation in the broader evangelical community? Be discerning. So a a preliminary distinction is made between legitimate and illegitimate shepherds. And then Jesus talks about this intimacy, this closeness that exists between himself and his sheep, himself and his people. It's beautiful. Uh, The sheep hear his voice, Jesus says. The, the, The sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd. Uh, they know his voice and therefore they follow him. When the shepherd speaks, uh, the sheep prick their ears. 
Because that's a voice they know. That's a voice they trust. That's a voice that has taken them countless times to lush pastures and clean water. So the sheep know that voice. They trust it. They follow it. There's a receptivity on the part of the sheep. And similarly, the shepherd knows his sheep by name. I assume that if you're an outsider not acquainted with the sheep, the sheep look to you like a sort of undifferentiated mass of wool. You can't distinguish one sheep from another. All sheep look the same if you're not the shepherd, right? Same sheepish face. Uh, But we're told that the good shepherd knows each and every sheep, knows their distinctive bleat, if you like, knows what they look like, knows where they like to rest. He is acquainted and intimately acquainted with each one of his people, knows their story inside and out. I jump down to, to verse 14, where Jesus further elaborates on this intimacy that he has with his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It's an amazing statement. Uh, just as I, there is an intimacy between the Father and Son, the Son loves the Father and knows him, and the, the Father knows the Son and loves him, there's that kind of intimacy between me and my people. There's that kind of closeness. I know all of their joys and sorrows and hopes and aspirations, all of the the secret worries that they don't communicate to anybody else, all of the secret joys, I know it all. I am intimately acquainted with them. There's a close bond between the shepherd and the sheep. And what that reveals is that Jesus didn't just come into the world to do something for us, to save us from our sin. Praise God that's true. He did come into the world to do that. But he also incredibly came into the world to enter into a relationship with us, to be our shepherd so that we might be his sheep. He came to claim us as his people and give us the privilege of calling him Savior and Lord. Like these sheep who hear the shepherd's voice, we ought to uh, listen to the voice of Christ in Holy Scripture and walk daily in his presence. And we ought to receive his word or his voice with eagerness and a readiness to obey everything that's there. We ought to be receptive to his voice the way that the sheep are. Uh, We ought to trust him. I'm sure very often sheep have no idea where the shepherd is taking them. The shepherd knows where the green pastures are, but the sheep don't. But they have an implicit confidence in in their shepherd that he's taking them in the right direction. In the same way, trust Jesus. Trust that he knows where he needs to take you and go with him, even if sometimes the journey has lots of twists and turns and is confusing. Having a relationship with Jesus means pouring out your heart to him in prayer, pouring out your sorrows and your joys, asking him for what you need and thanking him for the way that he has provided again and again for you. One indicator of close relationship with the Lord is a robust prayer life. He speaks to us through his word and we speak back in prayer. Are you walking with the Lord? Is there a love for the Lord that expresses itself in daily communion with him? Is there a back and forth fellowship that characterizes you? This is the privilege that we all have as God's people. We're all invited to this. Whatever else you prioritize this coming year, prioritize fellowship with Christ, our shepherd. And do this recognizing that Jesus knows you perfectly, knows the whole truth about you, and he loves you perfectly. Uh, There are a few things sweeter in life than to be completely known, warts and all, by another person and to be accepted and loved by that person. To feel like you don't need to put on a facade, you don't need to defend yourself. They know the worst about you and they love you anyway. 
And that's supremely true of our relationship with Jesus. He knows the worst about us, but he loves us anyway as our shepherd. So there's a closeness and intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. That's number one. He knows the sheep. Secondly, notice that Jesus gives life to his sheep. In verse 6, we're told that the people listening to Jesus didn't understand the analogy that he's been using between shepherd and sheep. It was confusing to them. So Jesus elaborates, but we should also note that he takes these metaphors or these pictures in a different direction. In verse 7, Jesus is not the shepherd, he is the door of the sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. What does that mean? Well, verse 9 clarifies, but before we get to verse 9, Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. Uh, when he talks about those who came before him, he's not talking about men like Moses and Ezekiel, faithful men of God who preached the word of God to his people. He's talking about spiritual leaders like those in chapter 9, who were selfish, destructive, claimed to be speaking for God when they were not. Those were thieves and robbers. Jesus goes on in verse 9 and says, I am the door. And here's, he explains the metaphor. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, he is the gateway to life. He is the gateway to salvation. The thought is similar to what he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and life. Everybody who comes to me will experience salvation. You will be rescued from the judgment of God, and you will be sons and daughters of God. That's what it means to be saved. And you will go in and out. You will be contented, fat, happy sheep. That's kind of the image, right? He's the good shepherd who takes his sheep to the pastures where they need to eat well, uh, and they're going to go in and out, and everything that they need is provided for. Uh, Verse 10 further clarifies what Jesus is getting at when he uses that image of going in and out. He says, the thief comes in to steal and kill and destroy. So false teachers come in to ravage the flock and to destroy. That's their purpose. But in contrast to them, Jesus says, I came that they may have life, And have it abundantly. Jesus' design for his flock is to give them not just a little bit of life, but as one commentator says, uh, life at its scarcely imaginable best. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what he has in store for the flock. Now, in the context of John's gospel, life includes a couple of things. Life includes rescue from divine judgment and a state of peace with God. So all of the hostilities between man and God have been set aside. Judgment has passed away and God freely welcomes us. He is not against us, he is for us. Life includes pardon. It also includes the hope of resurrection life. The hope that one day we will be physically raised from the dead to participate in a renewed creation. But according to John 17, three, the essence of of life, eternal life, is to know the Father and to know the Son. To walk in sweet fellowship with the Father and the Son. That is the essence of life, and that's what Jesus has come into the world to give us. Life in communion with him and the Father. So we need to understand what Jesus wants for us in the things that he brings about in our lives. In absolutely everything that Jesus brings about, he is seeking not our destruction and misery, but our life and our good. It's not just that Jesus in general seeks life and good for us, but that there are significant exceptions when bad things happen. We shouldn't think of those as as exceptions to his desire to give life, but as means by which he gives life. Even difficulties 
are means by which Jesus does good to us. I think C.S. Lewis uh, beautifully captures that truth in his book, The Horse and His Boy. There's a young man named Shasta who is uh, lost in a forest high up on a mountain. And this is just the latest misery of many miseries that he's been experiencing. He's alone, he's lost, and he surveys his life in this moment in the story. He considers the fact that as a, as a young boy, as a, as a baby even, he was separated from his parents, and he was brought up by a very harsh man. And so he decides to run away from home, seeking a better country, which he does, steals a horse, and so he starts to go to a better country. But on, on the way to Narnia, that's where he's headed, at one point he's chased by a lion. Thankfully, he makes it safely through. But on another occasion, at night, he has to spend the night in a graveyard by himself. Just tombs all around in utter darkness. The only thing he can hear is the howling of jackals in the distance. And then even as he gets close to his aim, close to his goal, he's chased by a lion again. And even at the moment where he could reasonably assume that he's going to be welcomed in by King Loon of Arkenland into his castle, he gets separated from King Loon and his men and finds himself alone, high up in a forest, uh, on, a, on a tall mountain. And so he's filled with self-pity as he looks back on his life. And he says, I'm the most unfortunate boy that there is. At that moment, he becomes aware of a figure next to him. Uh, it dawns on him that this is another lion. But this is no ordinary lion. This is Aslan himself, the creator of Narnia, and indeed the Christ figure in the Narnia stories. And the great lion says to the boy, tell me your sorrows. And so the boy rehearses his story and his miseries. And when he's done, the lion says, I don't call you unfortunate. And then Aslan proceeds to tell that same story from a different perspective. He says, do you remember that time when the lion first chased you? That was me. And the result was that you found a traveling companion in Erebus. You were no longer alone because I chased you. Do you remember that night when you were alone among the tombs and there was that cat that sat next to you and comforted you? That was me, and I kept the jackals away. And do you remember how at that final moment as you were rushing to get the news to King Loon, you were chased by a lion? That also was me. And I chased you to give you the strength of fear to get to the, your goal in time. And do you remember how you were separated early on in life from your parents and raised by a harsh man? Well, here's what happened. I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. I saved your life. In other words, all those times, all those places in your life where you're tempted to feel self-pity because of the way things went wrong for you, I was behind all of those things, and instead of bringing destruction to you, I was bringing you life. I was advancing your good. Indeed, I saved your life. And so also, as sheep of the good shepherd, we can live with a confidence that even in the moments of sorrow and apparent defeat, he is working in all of those things to advance our good and our life. We can confidently say, as David says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, David had a hard life. 
There are lots of heartaches, lots of sorrows, lots of challenges. Many of his heartaches were the result of his own sin and foolishness. But he says, when the dust settles and I look back on it all, I'm convinced that my story is not going to be a tragedy, one of defeat and sorrow. It's going to be a tale of God's grace and mercy. We need to have the same confidence that the good shepherd is working unseen, even in the sorrows of life, not to destroy us, but to give us, as Jesus says in verse 10, abundant life. Third thing to notice about Jesus then is that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here there's another contrast made. This time Jesus doesn't contrast himself to false teachers, to thieves and robbers. Uh, He contrasts himself to the hired hand. This person has been hired to look after the sheep. And this person is not destructive, merely selfish. The hired hand, as long as he's paid, as long as there's no immediate danger to himself, is prepared to help the sheep. But as soon as there's danger on the horizon, as soon as a wolf comes, the hired hand bolts because he's more concerned about himself than the welfare of the sheep. But Jesus says, I'm not like that. The welfare of the sheep, says Jesus, is more of a concern for me than even my own life. The good shepherd prefers to experience harm himself that his sheep might not experience harm. The good shepherd lays down his life so that his sheep can be rescued from divine judgment and brought to a place of peace with God. And Jesus goes on to note in verses 17 and 18 that he doesn't lay down his life because he's coerced by some external force. It might be uh, possible to make the mistake that you know, Jesus died because he was outmaneuvered by his enemies or he was at the mercy of powers uh, beyond his control. No, no, no. Right? His death is, a, is in accord with the divine plan, and it's a death that he freely embl- embraces. Verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes it, his life, from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus says that the Father loves him because in all things he submits to the Father, even in yielding his life for the sheep. And the Father has called him to lay down his life and then take it up again, and Jesus will freely do that of his own accord in adherence to the Father's charge. I love the sheep, and I go and I die freely for them. I choose to die for them that they might have life. That's who Jesus is, the good shepherd who takes our place And at the cross, our good shepherd endures the judgment of God in our place. He's punished. Harm comes to him that we might be rescued from divine judgment and have peace with God. That's who Jesus is. That's the kind of shepherd he is. He puts the needs of his flock uh, above himself and yields even his life. I think that should astonish us more than it does. I think we're too comfortable, too complacent about the fact that, oh yeah, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me, as Paul says in Galatians. When we look at our lives and we see the, you know, the folly, the silliness, the insecurity, the sin, uh, the, the corruption, the selfishness, all of our weaknesses and limitation, we look at our life and then we, next to our life we put the life of Jesus and we see wisdom and goodness and obedience to God at every point. It should astonish us that Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my perfect, sinless, spotless, wise life for them, for you. That's the kind of shepherd he is. And if he's prepared to do that for us, if he's prepared to give even his life for us, that means we can trust him. 
If he did that for us, if he's preparing to yield his life for us, how is he not also in all things going to advance our good? So that's one more argument in this passage to trust in Jesus. Wherever he takes you, I don't know what this year will mean for our church, for me individually, for you, but I know that if you're in Jesus' hand and he's your shepherd and he's taking you, you can walk with confidence that because where he's taking you is good. Note finally, that as a result of his laying down his life, he has one flock. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That is a reference to Gentiles or non-Jews, outsiders to Israel. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So his fold in the first instance refers to Jews who are following him. He says, there are other sheep. There are Gentiles not of this fold. And I must bring them also. We're going to see this theme develop more as Jesus gets closer to his uh, crucifixion and passion in John. The idea that he has come not just for Israel, but also to bring in Gentiles and outsiders. And notice, he came to to bring them, uh, and they will listen. The Gentiles will listen to his voice with the result that there will be one flock and one shepherd. We need to notice something very clearly here. Jesus comes to unite Jew and Gentile into one flock and one people. This is sometimes missed. Uh, We can sometimes think that God has two peoples. The Jews, he's got the Jews and his plan for them, and he's got the church and his plan for the church. But what we need to recognize is that consistently in the New Testament we see that Jews and Gentiles are combined into one people through the work of Jesus. He doesn't have two people, but one. We can make this case from a variety of different passages. Uh, One that I'll give you, though, is Ephesians 2.14. Paul writes, He, referring to Christ, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Same idea. Jews and Gentiles have been brought together as one people through faith in Christ. There is one shepherd and one flock. Think think for a moment about what implications that may have had for that man who was formerly blind but was now healed. Remember, that's the larger context here. Uh, That man, as we saw, lost his spiritual leadership. The Pharisees kicked him out of the synagogue. But he didn't just lose the leaders who were supposed to be caring for him. He lost his flock, right? He got kicked out of the synagogue. He got kicked out of the religious community. And Jesus is saying, you may have lost that flock, but there's a better flock, my flock. And everybody who comes to me will not just find the ultimate shepherd who will protect them and guide them. They will find the ultimate flock. They will be members of my body, they will be part of my church, they will be part of my people. Think about, it must have been consoling for that man to hear, yes, you've lost that community, there's a better one. Welcome into my, into my flock. Uh, what we then can see is that it's not just individual sheep on different hills following the shepherd, right, in isolation from one another. There is one woolly mass of sheep following the shepherd. In other words, there's one flock following Jesus together. So we've been talking about the shepherd-sheep relationship, uh, and of course there's a personal aspect to it, us and Jesus, but we also need to understand that there's a corporate aspect to it. To follow Jesus means to follow him with other believers who are part of that same 
flock. You're not following Jesus well if you're following him in isolation from other believers. Part of the way he protects you and provides for you is through the gifts uh, and encouragement of the body of Christ. And this is an important corrective to sort of modern individualistic tendencies where we think of community as a luxury good, right? Like I have Jesus, I believe in him, and I can just read my Bible and pray and I'll be fine. Well, you won't be. Uh, those things are important, and I don't mean to deny that they're import- uh, their significance, but you're not following Christ the way Christ is calling you to follow him if you're following him in isolation from Christian community and from the church. We need to be seeking him, not just individually, but together. Are you doing that? Uh, Are you highly individualistic in your approach to your relationship with Jesus? Again, I don't want to deny there's a personal, individual aspect to it. Um, Or is there a substantial place in your life for seeking Jesus with others? Uh, How do we do that? Well, obviously we have to spend some time together. Uh, It's not going to happen as we just say uh, polite hellos on Sunday morning and then go our own way. There has to be some time spent together. We have to spend time uh, not just eating together, which is good, but also praying together, sharing scripture with one another, talking about our great Savior. That's what unites us. I mean, look around. We, we come from different backgrounds. We've got all sorts of different interests, uh, come from, just come from different places. Why are we here this morning? Uh, we're here because we're part of the same flock and we have the same shepherd. And so the more we press into that reality, the more we uh, rejoice in the shepherd that we have in common, the more we are going to be united together. So this year, by all means, seek Jesus, pursue him, but pursue him with others. Meet with other believers for mutual encouragement, for prayer, uh, to share what God's doing in your life. We need that, and others need that from us. As we step back from this passage, then we get a beautiful picture of the good shepherd. We get a picture of the shepherd who is intimately acquainted with all of our heartaches, sorrows, and joys. He knows us. There's a closeness. Uh, He's a shepherd who wants to give us not destruction, but life, and not just life, but life in abundance. He's the shepherd who freely lays down his life for us. All of those things are meant to encourage us to follow Jesus with abandon. Uh, What he has for you is far better than anything you could have chosen for yourself. So go where he leads you in the confidence that he knows best. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to you for the love that you've shown us, the love that drove you to sacrifice your life for us, uh, the love, Lord, that continues to guide us and direct us through the wilderness of this life until we come safely home. Help us, Lord, to live in light of this truth. Help us, we ask, to have a greater confidence and faith in you as our shepherd. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen.